Welcome to Magic Hour. We have a wonderful treat for you today. Novelist, screenwriter, playwright Gabrielle Bergmoser. Gabe's a graduate of the VCA Masters of Screenwriting program back in 2015. What's amazing about Gabe is he's a born writer. So he hasn't just chosen one stream to be in. He's not just interested in theatre, just interested in film and TV, just interested in novels. He's just interested in telling your stories. And what he's done is he writes so much and so often with a discipline that blows my mind that he's been able to have amazing successes across many fields. So Gabe left the school. He won the Sir Peter Ustinoff Award with the script that he was working on while he was at the school. That's an incredibly prestigious international TV script writing award. He went into development of ideas for film and TV. He's worked in Hollywood on adaptations of his books. And kind of most interestingly, he got a big deal with HarperCollins a few years back and has gone on to write a couple of incredibly successful bestsellers. His stories, The Hunted and The Inheritance from 2020 and 2021 are best-selling novels and they are page turners. He knows how to pull an audience in, he knows how to give you twists and turns that keep you on the edge of your seat. This is a pretty freewheeling conversation, I forewarn you. Gabe and I are old buddies and you can probably pick that up while we're chatting. But I think there's a lot of really great tips in there for storytellers of all kinds. So let's get to know Gabe a little better. Okay. Welcome to Golden Hour. We're done. Thanks, man. (laughs) Cool. All right, we'll we'll just get into it, I reckon. Yeah, sweet. All right, so, Gabe. Ben. Welcome to Golden Hour, which is our VCA podcast. Um... You're an alumni of the school. You graduated in 2015. Yep. And what's, well, there's lots of interesting things about you, but one of the things that I think is super interesting to talk about uh, is the fact that you're, you see yourself as a writer, not a screenwriter, not a playwright, not a novelist. You like to write in different mediums and you found most success in novels with uh, two best-selling novels, The Hunted and The Inheritance. Um so I'm I'm keen on a few things. I want to talk to you about being a screenwriter and then using the craft of that to write a novel. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. What I'd kind of like the audience to know first is kind of your origin story. Can you give us kind of a little history of who you are and why you decided to become a writer and how you ended up at the VCA? Yeah, for sure. So I um I think like like for a lot of writers. I was very, very obsessed with stories from a very young age. Mm. Um, and I feel like I'm saying Conroy was interested in politics from a very young age. <laughs> <laughs> Getting, sorry, succession's on my mind. Yeah, like, oh, me too. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and, and when I say interested in stories, I mean, you know, like I read a lot. I watched a lot of movies. Like dad took us to the movies a lot growing up and everything. And I, I think I just had this almost pathological obsession with the stories that were my favorites. Yeah. So whether it was Tomorrow When the War Began, whether it was mm-hmm. Harry Potter, like the stuff I was reading growing up and everything, yeah. you know, all I wanted to do was like read them again and again, think about them, talk about them, like, you know, like really, really obsessed over them to the point of like, you know, driving away what friends I did have because I just would not shut up about these things. <laughs> and So that sets you out, doesn't it? Because yeah, like, lo- lots of kids love stories, but there's loving stories and there's loving stories. And so I guess you were lucky in that you found something that really captured your imagination. What do you think that is? I, I, I don't know, man, obsession. Um, yeah. I think it's a fixation. I mean, cause there's loving stories and there's not being able to think about anything else. Yes. And you know, I mean, that was, I remember being a kid and like being on holiday with my parents and babbling at my dad about Jaws 4 or something. <laughs> and dad just being like, can we talk about anything that isn't movies? And I was like, <laughs> I don't really know how. Yeah, yeah. And and it's funny because there were things I was really into growing up that like my parents would um would try to ban from me, like whether it was a TV show I liked or a or a movie or whatever, because I watched them too much. Mm. Like and I talked about them too much. And they were <laughs> like, you know, this this obsession's really, you know, unhealthy and uh didn't didn't manage to quite stamp that one out of me. But I think for me the turning point was I, I don't think I ever had this like clear conception of becoming a writer as no. such or becoming a storyteller as such. Well, unless you've got but parents that do that, how do you know? Exactly, that that's you, you know, you, yeah. you wouldn't even wouldn't have even occurred to me. Like I, I guess I kinda of had in my head that like, you know, books and movies sprung fully formed out of mm. nowhere. But I think the turning point, which is probably a cliche for a lot of writers of my age, would be seeing Lord of the Rings at the movies yeah. for the first time. Like going to see the Fellowship of the Ring and sitting there and in that first scene, I would have been 10 when that came out. And in that first scene, 
just kind of being like having this this feeling of being like I didn't know a story could be like this. Yeah, I didn't right. know something could be so epic, have mm. so much grandeur, but still be like funny and have these little human moments and be, you know, scary and gripping and engaging and emotional and sad and passionate all mm. at once. And I wouldn't, it, it's not like I was hit by a lightning bolt in that moment. I was like, I will be a writer. It was more just like that consolidated the fact that this was going to define my life. How like, old are you? I'm 31 now. That, that's, yeah, that's just occurred to me that you did come of age in a time when, you know, the biggest films were from books. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, I mean, obviously films have always come from books, but things like Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings trilogy and all the rest of it, The Hobbit, all that stuff, that is, they were the biggest films of their time. And that was squarely my generation, you know? Yeah, it, was yeah, like, yeah. it was huge. It was all encompassing. And Which then grew into the Game of Thrones generation, Exactly, and on it yeah. goes. Um, and I mean, there were other things as well. Like, you know, I, I used to, as a kid, like I would hire out Jaws from the video store every week <laughs> and mum and dad wouldn't buy it for me. So I would scrape my pocket money together, hire out the weekly DVD, watch it several times throughout the week, bring it back and then immediately hire it again and oh, just wow. watch okay. it the next week and the next week and the next week. George is a great and film. It's but a yeah. great film, but it just like, you know, I That's was... That's pretty full on though. No wonder they're worried about you. Oh yeah, no, I mean, and, look, and fair enough, you know, and, and like there were different steps on the <laughs> way. Can you talk about like, football? Yeah. Well, that's it. I just, I couldn't get it. Like I was, you know, watching, I remember trying to get into footy several times when my friends were and just being like, I don't get it. I don't, I can't invest in this. But, but yeah, so, you know, I spent a few years like trying to write a few different things and everything and I never got very far. Um, I wrote a really derivative attempt at a novel when I was about 13 that was basically just like the stuff I was into at the time, which was like Science of the Lamb, Psycho, Saw, that kind mm. of thing mashed together. And it was like the most derivative piece of shit imaginable. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I think it was just like bit by bit, as often happens, I started writing stuff that was more me because you always start out emulating what you no, love, of course, right? Of yeah. course you do. And then bit by bit, you start, you get older and you realize that there's things that are on your mind or things that you're angry about or upset about or things you want to unpack or things that you haven't dealt with. And that starts making its way into your stories and your stories, mm. I guess, start to become a bit more you. And then, so I think by the time I finished high school, it was very obvious to me that there was nothing else I cared about this much. There was mm. nothing else I was willing to invest this much time and effort into. And so from there on, it became, all right, well, now I know I want to be a writer, but how do you become one? Mm. Because they're, they're two very, very different things. No, of course. And it's not like a lot of other industries where there is a, um, you know, a clear path. I mean, like even the Masters of ECA, which I did, I mean, that's probably the highest screenwriting qualification in the country, right? Mm. But that doesn't guarantee you a job. Oh, God, no. You know, so yeah. that's, that's really helpful. And it taught me a lot. And it was like immensely invaluable in terms of actually establishing a career, but, but, you know, it didn't, I, I couldn't walk out of there and immediately get to an entry level no, job. God, no. yeah, yeah. So, you know, after that, it kind of just became sort of trial and error and just as you go refining a little bit along the way. And I think the big lesson I've probably learned is that when I was a kid and I think a lot of people think this when they're starting out, I believe that there was some big golden secret, you know, mm. to being an author or a filmmaker or whatever it was. I believe mm. that there was some kind of secret and that was being kept from me. Yes. And one of the most kind of simultaneously demoralizing and inspiring things I was ever told was when I sent a manuscript to somebody when I was about 22 or 23, who was an author who I knew and he read it. He was kind enough to read it. And I said to him, and he said it was really good. And I was like, okay, well, why can't I find a publisher? And he was like, look, sometimes it's just hard. You know, sometimes it just doesn't get across the line. Mm. And I was like, yeah, but what do I do differently? And he was like, nothing. He's like, you're doing everything right. Yeah. And on the one hand, it's like, okay, cool. I'm doing everything right. I'm not making some terrible mistake but on the other hand if i'm doing everything right mm. why aren't i getting anywhere yeah and you know it just it's it unfortunately it is a career based entirely on subjectivity mm. and somebody's subjective opinion just might not be that you're very good even if you are doing everything right and that can be a hard thing to deal with i think what's in, yeah uh, yeah luck is going to play a role in this because it, it is true when i have when you have students going but it, like how do i get a job and i'm going i actually can't tell you that yeah um you know someone who knows someone who knows someone, you're in the right place at the right time, Certain something that you happen to be writing about is on someone's mind who saw a play of yours. There's so many chaotic variables to it, but the one thing I think most people can't do is go, I want to be a writer, and rather than having a, my end game is a, you know, having a best-selling novel or, you know, something gets published or a film comes out or whatever else to, to have the ambition that I just want to be a better writer and I'm going to write most mm. days that will eventually work for you on some level. Yes. Because you're yes. writing every day. I, I think there's a, one of my favorite kind of philosophers, a guy called Pete Rowland says that most people are either depressed or in, in a state of melancholy. 
And the, the ones who are depressed is because they go, oh, if I just had a job in TV, then I'd be happy. If I just had a film made, then I'd be happy. Um, uh, so they're depressed because they haven't got it. So that's half the population. And the other half are in melancholy because they got it and they're, it's not as much as what they thought it would be. Yeah, they yeah, go, oh, I've got the book published. I'm, why am I still empty? And he said the only way you can get around that is to have not to desire that thing that you want to have made, but to desire to get better at something that you love doing. Well, there's there's a huge <laughs> amount of satisfaction in that, you know, and like there's, I, I think that it's maybe an old fashioned way of thinking, but I do think that there is enormous satisfaction in a job well done, you yes, know, like, yeah. and to me, that's what gives me satisfaction every day. Like I can get to the end of the day and like lie on the couch and watch some TV or go out with friends and everything and feel completely fine with doing whatever I want. As long as I feel like I've written something worthwhhile that day. Yeah, totally. Worthwhile doesn't have to mean good. It can be like a step in a process because yeah. it takes a long time, you know, and even when you've finished a manuscript or a draft screenplay or whatever, it's not finished. I mean, in the case of a screenplay, it's not finished until it's filmed and edited and no, totally. out in the world and everything. But I, I do think that there are a lot of people in the world for whom the idea of being a writer holds a lot more appeal than actually doing it. Oh yeah. And you know, it's like, and, and people who like love it the sounds idea good of at being, the party. exactly, you know, mm. and people who love the idea of being, you know, like Stephen King or Quentin Tarantino or whatever, but don't necessarily want to do the work no. because, because it wouldn't, they, they wouldn't even know how necessarily, no, you no. know, and the well, thing they is, haven't got the joy, the thing that, and that's it. that, that you need to have the desire to want to do it a lot. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the thing is you need to have that desire even in the face of, countless setbacks yes. and in the face of the fact that like you can spend ages feeling like you are rolling a boulder up a hill and it comes mm. down again and again and again and again and you've got to keep doing it because you know i mean <laughs> the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again mm. and expecting a different result well that's kind of how you become a writer like oh, you know course. you do the yeah, same thing yeah. again and expect a different result and hope that you're going to get better as you go and look if you do it enough and you do it consistently and you love it enough and you kind of keep open-minded and like learn from every mistake then yeah you will get better there's yeah. kind of no way around it but um but at the same time, like a lot of people aren't willing to put that work in. And some people say to me, like, I get asked quite a bit, you know, what motivates you? Like, why, why do you write so much? And my, my honest answer, which maybe sounds like pretentious or a cop out or like it isn't giving them what they want is I write so much because it wouldn't occur to me not to, Yeah, yeah. because I would be unhappy if I didn't, because the times when I don't write, I get weird. I get yeah, no, grumpy. I, yeah. I get bad. You know, I've got to write because it's like, it's how I keep myself sane. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you become a bad person and you make the lives of the people you care about a misery if you 100%. don't do it. And I think that's, I don't think if you haven't got that drive, then you, you won't have the passion to keep going when all those setbacks exactly. come along exactly. and the, the setbacks end up teaching you how to be a better writer. So even things like, I mean, I've been, um, I've been commissioned to write scripts that may or may not ever get filmed. And I, I'm at the age now where I don't give a shit about that. I'm just lucky to get paid to, have, to yeah to write the thing and the, what it taught you when you were writing it and how you told that story and that just makes you a better writer. So when the time comes around, you the next time you work on something, you've written all those thousands of hours worth of work that just makes you a better writer. And that that happened with your novel, right? Yes, yeah. Um, where it was, I mean, funnily enough, it was there was this book that I wrote in high school. And I mean, yeah, you asked me before for like the origin story. And I do think one of the most key parts of that origin story was this idea I had in year 12. And it just like, you know, struck me one day. And I just thought it was the most like brilliant thing that wasn't ripping off anything else. It was something that was completely mine. And this idea I had that like just excited me so much and it felt so vivid and so real. And, you know, I wrote it, didn't get published. I adapted into a play when I was doing youth theater. It was performed, you know, did as well as a youth theater play in Warburton can do. I, um, <laughs> rewrote it, tried to publish it again, didn't work. I self-published it, uh, you know, sold about five copies. Um, and then I ended up doing it as my final screenplay when I was here at VCA. And then mm. that won me the Peter Usenov Award, which got me to America and to the International Emmys and everything. Mm. And that was a career game changer. But it was a double-edged sword because at the same time it convinced me because I hadn't won any other awards. I'd never been shortlisted for anything. I had, I had no real tangible reason to think I was good at writing other than the fact I wanted to do it. The award was the first time I'd had any kind of professional validation for my writing. Yeah. And just and for so, people listening, the Sir Peter Ustinoff Award is a big prestigious award for writers outside of America that are writing a one hour pilot for yes, a TV series. Yes. And under the age of 30. Under so eight, it's yeah. like for, for a lot of people studying at VCA right now, it's mm. kind of a, it's a no brainer to enter it. Yeah. You know? 
But, um, but you know, that was a funny one because after that, you know, I couldn't get anywhere with that pilot even though I'd won this award. So I thought, all right, I'll write the novel again. And I wrote the novel again. And by this point, I've been working on this for 10 years. Yeah. And it's still just like, and I tried to get the novel published again. And I was like, and, and it didn't work. It kind of, you know, fell over. Nobody was interested. And at that point, you kind of go, I've been working on this for 10 years. Like, <laughs> it's the only thing I've got that has had any professional validation if not this, then what? Like, if mm. I can't get this across the line, a decade's worth of work that won mm. this award, then then what, you know, what's the point of, you know, the, the idea at that point of starting a new project was beyond demoralizing because in my head, I would have to start a new project and spend yeah. another 10 years working on refining it. How could it be something. as good? But the thing was, what, what, I, what, what eluded me at the time was the fact that, because I, I then wrote The Hunted, which became my first like big successful novel and, you know, changed my life really quickly. And The Hunted was not a long writing process. Like it took me about two months to write that first draft and then refine it, send it to my agent and they picked it up really quickly. And then it kind of blew up from there. But, um, but putting it that way makes it sound like it wasn't very much work and it was something I just kind of like tossed off one afternoon. But the reality was it was the product of the 10 years of work I yes, spent yes. on the other book. Which, without which I wouldn't have known how to write character. I wouldn't have mm. known how to write prose that felt like my own. I wouldn't have yes. known how to tell a story, basically. So as much as at my lowest moment, I remember thinking I spent a decade working on this book mm. and it's all been wasted, nothing was wasted. Nothing's no, God, ever no. wasted. Yeah, I was thinking, I, I went and saw uh, Goran Stavlevsky's film Of an Age, which I really loved, the uh, Australian coming-of-age film. And it, it was a Q&A and afterwards he said, oh, I wrote it, I wrote this feature film uh, you know, over a weekend or something or in a week. And I was like, oh, man... I hope no screenwriting students are here because <laughs> um, they'll be thinking. And but what it was on the back of was that Goran had been making short films and writing feature films and working in writers' rooms for like 15, 20 years. Of course. So you, by doing it, you become so much better at it, and then you may be in the position where an idea will come to you and it'll flow out of you. When you, you know, it's that beautiful thing when you're a writer where sometimes it just flows, but it's flowing because you've been studying it for that long and working on the craft for that long. And like, it's become second nature. And you yeah. know, it's like, I think that often those stories, like, you know, I wrote this in a weekend or whatever. Um, I think that a lot of aspiring writers take the wrong lessons from yeah. those. I mean, when I was a kid, like I was always blown away by, you know, Matthew Riley, who self-published his first book and then a p publisher happened to pick it up in a store yeah. and, you know, blew up and now he's this multimillionaire bestselling author. Or Christopher Paolini, who was 15 and self-published his first book or his parents self-published it for him. Mm. And then a publisher happened to see him speak at a bookstore and went from there. Now, I hear that story and I think, you know, I can self-publish the book and it'll yeah. be found by a publisher and everything. That's what I did. That's why I self-published, thinking yes. I'd get the same result. What I didn't realize was that both of them had worked really hard to make sure that their books looked as professional and eye-catching and, yeah. you know, like they looked like real published books. They didn't look like a self-published kind of, you know, like in my case, I had a cover that was pixelated, made by a mate of mine, probably on Windows Paint. So it's like a like, fanzine. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, printed by my local printing press, typeset by me in Microsoft Word with Times New Roman font. Like, you know, it, <laughs> nothing about it looked professional. And the other thing was that both of those guys, when Christopher Paolini went to any bookstore that would have him, dressed as one of his characters and did readings and everything and like engaged people and it happened to be that that caught a publisher's eye it's and worked. Matthew Riley like got up at five in the morning every day and lugged boxes to bookstores and begged them and I yeah. think he even said in an interview somewhere I, I could be making this up but I think he said something that like he knew that they would feel so sorry for him that they would stock his book <laughs> and like I never did that I just kind of sat back and thought now it's yeah. self-published and it's yeah, like yeah. stocked by one secondhand bookstore who realistically probably did feel sorry for me I thought you know a publisher will walk in there pick it up and that mm. would change my life forever of course it didn't because I wasn't doing the work. Yeah. Like, and so I was hearing the story of like, oh, it's so easy. You get self-published, yeah. publisher picks you up and away you go. People hear that story and they go, oh, you wrote it in a weekend. I can do that. Yes. Like, well, no, you have to do a huge amount of work to be able to write it in a weekend and get yeah. it out there like that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, you, you're just someone who I know writes an enormous amount. And I just think if you're going to get good at something, you just need to do, do it a hell of a That's, a that's lot. the secret. Do it a lot until you get yeah. good. I mean, and other people will drop off. You know, I, I've had people that have tried to get in the industry and after six months they give it up and I'm like, hang on, like you're not even going to become a good writer in six months. No, of course. <laughs> and that's it because people don't like, I mean, look, if I'd, I sometimes think if I'd known as a kid when I decided I wanted to be a writer, how much work it would take, would I have done it? And probably, yeah, because I wasn't good at or passionate about anything else. Mm. But my God, I would have thought twice, you know, yeah, if yeah, I'd yeah. known it was going to be this hard and if I'd known it was going to be this long a slog. But the fact that it's a long slog means that when something does happen, you know it's not a fluke and you know yeah. it's earned. And there's an anecdote I always think back to, which, because I do a lot of school and library talks now, and I often close the talks with this story, which is a couple of years ago, I was home for Christmas and my mum was digging through boxes of old stuff. 
And she found these stories that I'd written when mm. I was younger. And she was like, oh, son, look, it's the stories you wrote when you were seven. Mm. And she was so proud. She's like, this is where it all began. And she yeah. gave them to me and I read them. And I was like, no, mom, these are the stories I wrote when I was 15. <laughs> like, they were just so bad, so terribly bad that she had assumed I was seven when she oh read them. Oh, my God, that's so cute. And I had this realization. I was like, okay, like, you know, I don't think I was ever any kind of, you know, preternatural talent or yeah. writing prodigy or anything like that. Mm. I I knew a lot of people at my school. In fact, the other night I was out, um, every year my hometown does a, uh, does a pub crawl, like up through the city and up Bridge mm. Road. This is and, Mansfield. Um, Mansfield, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah and so every year they all come, like a bunch of Mansfield people come down and everything and, um, and, you know, do this pub crawl and everything. And we had it this weekend just gone. And I ran into a mate of mine who I hadn't seen since school. And when I was in school, I was so intimidated by him because he was such a good writer. Mm. Like he was this, he was like this brilliant writer. I would read his stuff and I knew that my prose was clunky and all over the place and everything. Mm. And his was like so colorful and vivid and explosive. And I knew a few writers like that in school who I was intimidated by like crazy because they were so much better than me. Mm. But he's not writing anymore. None no, of them are writing anymore. No. And that's really interesting because all of those people were more talented than me easily. Yes. But talent is like, like 1% of the equation. Mm. Like, cause you can get better. Like I think you probably mm. need to have a little bit of talent to yeah. get somewhere, but what's far more important than talent is passion and persistence. Yes. Because without that, you get nowhere. Like no, talent, yeah. you know, t there's that line in um, the TV show hacks where it's like, you know, talent is the minimum, like the absolute mm. bare minimum of what you need to get somewhere. Yeah. I love that show. Yeah. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we get onto like, the skills you use as a screenwriter to write your novel, I, I am interested in how you handle setbacks and rejections because that's a real you need a certain kind of mind the probably the reason why i mean i have no passion to be an actor but i always really feel for actors because they get knocked back probably more than any other yeah, artistic absolutely. profession it's over and over again i just don't know how they deal with that still you've had to put up with a lot of people going this isn't good and much harsher things than that what's your as you've matured what's your mindset with those kinds of notes? i emotionally repress it <laughs> until I'm able to deal with it. Right. Okay. Like, Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So I've had, um, like when I was in independent theater, for example, like if I would get a bad review or like in one particular case, a truly savage review, um, obviously that hurts. But, but the reality is that like a bad review like that, like a really harsh one only truly hurts you if you know it's right. Yeah. Right. Like if so your gut was telling you on some my, level. Yeah. My gut was telling me on some level it was right. And that's why I was so hurt by it because mm. I read it. And I'd had other, I've, I've had many of bad reviews in my life where I've read them and I kind of go, okay, whatever. And, you know, it's not, it's never pleasant to read, but you can shrug mm. it off, mm. you know. Like, for example, um, before the very first review, and it's not even really a review, but the first kind of public statement on the quality of The Hunted was about six months before the book came out. Raph Epstein on ABC Radio spoke about it. Mm. And I remember being told, oh, Raph Epstein's going to talk about your book today. And mm. I was actually in Austria at the time visiting family. Mm. And so I got up like first thing in the morning, mm. like, you know, so I could get the time right or, or like I stayed up late or either or yeah. like I stayed up a certain and like tuned into like ABC radio, like via my laptop, like sitting there, like listening to it really closely. And he was like, yeah, so I, re I read this book, The Hunted. And um, anyway, you know, like HarperCollins putting a lot of money and time into it, but I don't know why, because it's terribly cliched. And, you know, like I didn't even finish oh. it. Like it was awful. Oh my God. And I remember hearing that and just being like, and that was like the first major review or, or first major statement on the hunted that had come out and from like on a, a radio really station with a couple hundred thousand people exactly listening. yeah and that sucked but at the same time i was like well i don't think it's true i don't mm. think the hunted is cliche i think that the hunted plays with certain cliches mm. and then subverts them as it goes on and that was a deliberate choice i made And if he didn't finish the book he wasn't going to get up to those no, parts it sounds like so, somebody didn't understand the genre yeah and for the most part i was like i thought about it and i was like do i agree and i was like no i don't agree and, mm. and the thing is like maybe he is right but you know at a certain level like or at a certain point everybody's opinion on any work of art is right because you yeah. can't tell somebody their subjective opinion is wrong of course yeah. you know it's there is like yeah, if you like I, something, you like it if you exactly. Had it. Yeah. You know, there's there's really no such thing as objective quality. Like that, you know. Oh, there is to a point, but you know, I mean, all you have to do if you want to like, you know, feel better about your own writing is like find your all-time favorite movie, go on IMDb, and set the filter to read all the one-star reviews, and there will yeah. be hundreds of thousands of yeah, them, not God, millions. Yeah. You know, no matter how of the Godfather, Science of the Lambs, no matter yeah. what film it happens to be. So there's always going to be somebody who there's no such thing as an artwork that pleases everyone. Nah. And that said, you know, if you get a response like that and you realize on some level it is true that's really really hard to deal with and in the yeah. case of some of the theater reviews i got back in the day the ones i couldn't shake mm. the ones i was thinking about and obsessing over to the point where i would 
find excuses to bring them up in conversation and people were like, just let it go. It doesn't matter. It's one dickhead's opinion. And people said that to me and I was like, yeah, I know, but it's really bothering me for some reason. And then once I'd kind of, you know, particularly if you're in a play and you're powering through a season of theater and you've got a bad review right at the start of the season, you can't accept that that's true until the play's over. No, of course. Because accepting it's true will mean going in every night the play's on and knowing that you've got a massive turkey on your hands. Yeah. And you, you can't accept that. No. So when I say I emotionally repress, I mean, I kind of do my best to ignore it until I've got enough distance to look at it critically. Yeah, distance is good. And be like, do I agree? Does it have a point? Yeah. Is it right? And and look, that's that's a really, really, truly hard thing to do. But the real answer is to like how I get past setbacks. Like in the... In the most depressing instances, like the most like crushing setback I ever had was in 2018 when I finally got this book I've been working on for a decade in front of an agent who I knew was interested in the idea and had read an early draft and was like, look, if you make some changes, you know, we'll have a look at it again. And I'd made all her suggested changes. And at the same time, I'd finally got the screenplay version, which I won the use of for in front of Matchbox mm. and they were considering as well, like officially mm. considering it to decide if they want to develop it. And in the same week, both came back and rejected it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this again is that thing of like, you know, I spent 10 years working on this mm. and I, I remember, I'll never forget this moment. Like I remember just kind of sitting there, like lying there on my bed, staring at the roof and being like, what is the point? Mm. Like actually, what is the point? And I say that that is the closest I ever came to giving up. But in reality, I was never going to give up because by this point, it, whether it's a fallacy of sunk costs or not, it's like, it's the only skill I have. Yeah, it's yeah. the only passion I have. It's like I never, whether this was wise or not, I never considered a backup option. So I wasn't qualified to do anything else. Yes. And it was kind of like, well, at this point, I've kind of got to forge on until I have something that works mm. or I don't know what else I can do. I don't yeah. really have any other options. And very, very fortunately, and maybe it's a case of, you know, the night's always darkest before the dawn. It's like the very next thing I wrote was The Hunted. Yeah. You know? So... Yeah, that's incredible. It's it, it's interesting with notes because they they've done some scientific studies on this, and they say that when you get feedback on a script or a novel that you've written, the part of your brain that gets activated is not the logical. Oh, I wonder what they're saying and whether it makes sense. It's the part of your brain that says you're about to get killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. And apparently that's true. Yep. Apparently, what goes on inside your mind when someone goes, "Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really enjoying this. Uh, the character in this so it ends a bit boring for me." You, the, part of your brain that goes, oh, I wonder if I could work on the end. That, that That's not being engaged. The part of your brain is like if someone was holding a knife to your throat and threatening yeah. to kill you. And so it's <laughs> so apparently, and I have definitely felt that, it is it is really difficult to hear feedback on your work. And when it's a no, feedback's one thing if you think you can do something with it, but when it's yeah. a no, it it can be really difficult to keep going on from that. Absolutely. So let's say you, the 100 hadn't have happened, you just, what keeps you, it is, is it just that this is the life I've chosen and that's, this is who I am. So I just, I have to do this regardless of how many no's there are. Like what, what yeah, kept you going it's, look, before it's a, those successes came? It's a really good question because like I, when that rejection happened of windmills, the last one before the hunted, um, I probably didn't realize it at the time, but in retrospect, I'm like, that was like, that was one of my lowest ebbs. Like I wasn't, I was not in a good place at that mm. time. You know, like I was, I was, you know. You've been writing cons consistently yeah, for and, like 15 years. And know, I was not in a good place day. for a few months there. Like I was, you know, I, I went through a period of like, you know, serious, like, like depression because I think up until a certain point, there are very clear goalposts you can aim for, whether it's finishing school, finishing uni, finishing your master's, entering this competition, whatever. But, You're young. Yeah. Well, exactly. You know. you know, and by this point, like 2018, this happened. I was three years out of my master's. There was nothing else I could do study wise, really. Mm. Um, I was at a point where like my partner at the time was like basically financially supporting me. Mm. You know, I was making a bit of money doing freelancing and doing creative writing, tutoring and everything. But, you know, I, I was like, if I don't get across the line the next year, mm. I, I genuinely don't know what I'll do. And the mm. thing is, I don't. To this day, I don't know what I would have done if The Hunted hadn't mm. been picked up. You know, probably been depressed and written something else. Mm. But um, I don't know. At the same time, it's like if, if that hadn't have happened and sort of been proof that I wasn't barking up the wrong tree, I, I, I just genuinely don't know. Yeah. Because it was a really, really confronting thing to sit there and think, maybe I'm not actually good. Mm. Maybe I don't actually have anything worth saying. Maybe nobody really cares. And look, on balance, I, you know, 
I had enough stuff to my name at that point that indicated I probably wasn't barking up the wrong tree. Like whether it was, you know, well-received mm. plays or, you know, I had a popular screenwriting podcast for a few years there that like had ended at this point. But, um, but you know, that did give me a following and did give me a sense that people liked my storytelling. And then, you know, I obviously I had the Peter Eustonov award win and everything. Mm. So I don't think I would have given up ever because I did at that point, I, I had just enough, mm. but I yeah I I I don't like to imagine the alternate timeline where the hunter didn't get picked up because I don't know well, what would have come after that. Well, this raises an interesting point because that is that from this I'm taking that it feels like you feel you need to have a certain amount of outside recognition for you to feel okay about yourself, and as soon as you put yourself in that boat of going I'm putting my happiness or or whether I have meaning in life on the decisions of other people you kind of can be setting yourself up for. Yeah, and so can you take some kind of Zen line yeah, on this and just a, be like, I am what I am and that's the thing? It's, it's a great, great <laughs> point because I think about it a lot, you know, and I also think that one of the most, one of the biggest fallacies that creatives ever get told is you don't need to worry about validation. And I'm like, well, yes, you do. Because firstly, <laughs> Zen Buddhism don't, be damned. Like, yeah, but I'm also saying? just like, you know, if you, if you don't, like, if you want to be a working creative actually making money, mm. the only way you can do that is through validation. No, no, somebody accepting yeah, the script yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So the thing was, you know, and, and look, you know, I never I never wanted to be like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling mm. or anyone. I, like, I, I don't need to be a celebrity writer or anything like that. Mm. I never did. I said, I knew from a very young age that I could be happy and fulfilled in my working life if I was in a position where I was writing stories, making a living from it, mm. and, you know, maybe had a small audience who was enjoying what I work, what mm. I did, you know, as long as I could do that. Mm. And even making a living doesn't have to be from just writing books. You know I mean? If mm. I was like, you know, for like I did for a few years, like tutoring on the side or whatever else, I would have been yeah. happy as long as my life was storytelling. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So, you, so you would have been happy with a life of, where you had a side hustle that's yeah, paid as, the rent. Yeah, as long as it was, you know, well, I think as long as it was creative it would have, yeah. and fulfilling, yeah. that would have been okay. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's like, one of the things that was happening around 2018 as well was the fact that I was getting to that age where I was looking at a lot of my friends, you know, getting married, getting to their mm. careers, like having kids, doing all buying of this and all buying business. houses yeah. and stuff. And here's me with like minus $2,000 in my bank account. Mm. And that's not changing anytime soon. You know, no. I've been in overdraft for five years at that point. <laughs> and I just kind of remember sitting there thinking like, like at what point am I too old to be a struggling writer anymore? Mm. You know, like I was still in my twenties, it was fine. But like, mm. but I was at that point where I was beginning to see that change happening and, um, and, you know, beginning to have to consider, like, if this doesn't work out, what am I going to do? Mm. Like, what am I going to do instead? Mm. And luckily I never had to, at least to date, because, you know, anything can change. You're only mm. as good as your last success. If my next book bombs, then, you know, yeah. I might be having this conversation again. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, it is one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, I was coming up to a point where I was like, I am going to have to consider a backup plan. And like, I saw this happen with an actor friend of mine a couple of years ago where, Basically, she was a really, really good actor, really, really, you know, um, doing well, getting good reviews and everything, but she just wasn't getting the work. You know, mm. she wasn't, and, and acting was her passion. She loved mm. acting the way that I loved writing, you know, yeah. she like studied and, you know, done all kinds of stuff. Which is harder to do when you're right, because yeah. you can write, you can write. Yeah. And then she got to her early thirties and she was just like, I'm just, I'm, I'm not getting parts. I'm not getting look-ins. I'm not getting anywhere with it. And I remember her saying at one point, she's like, this is the first time in my life that I'm starting to realize I have to have a backup plan. I don't have one. Mm. And I saw her really, really struggle, you know, for a little while there. And now she's in a different career and everything. And she's mm. kind of let it go a bit. But what's that done to her? I don't think she's, I look, I think that she's, look, I, I haven't seen her in a little while, but um, the last few times I saw her, I did kind of find myself thinking a bit like, I don't think you're quite the same as you were. Mm. You know, I think that like, I think that being put in a position where you have to give up the thing you care about most mm. in the world, that's a, that's a terrifying prospect yeah, to me. Yeah. Like that's, that goes beyond ego death. That's like, yeah. that's a hugely terrifying idea. And with acting, you kind of have to be acting to do it. Whereas I guess with writing, you just have to write. Yeah. And that's exactly it. You know, I mean like, look, if, if like, if I didn't get another contract tomorrow, mm. like I'd, I'd never stop writing. I'd always no. be writing and everything. Yeah. And you know, I'd, I'd try to find another way and I'd try to mm. find something else and everything. But, um, but, you know, like, and, and that's okay. You know, I can, I could get by doing that. But I do also think that, like, I, I don't think I could ever be happy just writing for myself. Right. Like, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I don't, like, no, no, no. Like, I'd be, I'd, sorry, let me rephrase that. Like, I, I, mean, I would I, always. You don't have to be. I'm just yeah. wondering. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 it's worth thinking about because it's like, like, then, of course, the question becomes, like, are you only writing for other people's validation? It's like, yeah. no, that's not the case. I'm writing because, you know, I love it and I obsess over it and I think about it and everything. But one of the reasons I love doing interviews and, um, and, you know, presentations and talks and everything so much is that 
so much of my life is me locked away in a room by myself mm. writing and living in this world and with these characters who I obsess over and who mean so much to me and are so real to me and everything. Mm. And at the end of that process or even during that process, I want to share that with people. I want to, you know, yes. discuss that. I want I want people to have that. I want people to see what I've been working on and everything. Yeah, and yeah. I want, you know... I, I, I don't want those characters to just exist for me because I've worked so hard on them and everything mm. that like, you know, and, and that's like, and that's not to say that I have the assumption that I think some writers have that just because I have made thing, people have to experience it and enjoy it. Mm. You know, like I've, I've saw so many people in independent theater who used to post on Facebook and stuff, you know, people weren't seeing their plays and they'd be like, I've put my heart and soul into this mm. and nobody's supporting it. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody's obligated to support mm. it. You know, like. Maybe yeah. people didn't ask to see your heart and soul. Like, you know, yeah. pouring your heart and soul into it again is like kind of the baseline. Yeah, and yeah, 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 then yeah. you have to make it good. Like, what are you, you, know, do you have to do make that? it compelling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, you know, I, like, I don't know. I think, um, I do think that like now at this point in my life, it would be really, really hard to, to backslide and, you know, go back to working hospitality or, um, or retail or whatever, which, mm. you know, I know are always fallbacks if, you know, the next few books don't happen. I know that a writer's life is ebbs and flows and ups and downs and everything. And I'm not mm. unaware of any of those things, but I do think the fact that for the last few years, my life has been a hundred percent storytelling. And I've got to live in mm. that zone. I think I'd find it very, very hard to move away from that now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you probably won't have to in the short term because you've got two best-selling books to your name. <laughs> for now I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I think those kind of questions are really important for artists to kind of set themselves up for what are you prepared to take? Yeah, what absolutely. are you prepared to put absolutely. up with to do it? And I think a lot of people look. My bugbear in 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 it's probably not just Australia, but it will let's leave it at Australia for now. Is that a lot of people that are in the arts are there because they come from wealthy backgrounds and they can afford to do, they can afford to do it. That wasn't the case with you, but um, uh, for people who haven't got parents who are just going to look after them, like many of people in the uh, arts industry in this country. Um, it is really important to kind of sit there and go, well, what does my life look like? What am I prepared to put up with? How does a life look like for me where maybe success doesn't knock on my door? I yeah. think they're really important things to think about because then you can be hurtling towards a serious breakdown if you've got expectations that are never going to get met it's just a really important thing to think about. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, I mean, like I was in a position where, you know, like my parents weren't super wealthy and they weren't able to, you know, like bankroll every mm. second thing I wanted to do, but they were always very supportive. And, you know, yeah. like, like maybe, you know, if I was ever really desperate, I could be mm. like, Hey, can I have a couple hundred bucks? Yeah, but yeah, it, would yeah. be, it would be that, you know, yeah, it wouldn't be like, just, you know, you're a middle-class kid. Exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, like, I'm talking um, about artists. I know whose parents buy them houses. Yeah, no, 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 no. Was, I was never in that kind of position. So, you know, like I was never going to starve, but like at the same time, it was like, you know, I knew a musician back when I worked at Dracula's who had like, and he had a band that just fucking sucked. Like just were not, <laughs> they were not good. And I went and I saw a few of their gigs and they just were not good at all. But you know, his parents paid for them to have like these massive album, la album launches at like big live music venues and oh, paid wow. for like CD pressings and vinyl pressings yeah. and everything. And all of that was paid for by mum and dad and stuff. Yeah, well. And, um, and I was like, you know, I don't, but I don't know if I'd ever be satisfied with that, you know, because no. I'm like, it's not really earned. No. Like it's not, if it's like bankrolled like that, then it's like, yeah, cool. It's like, it's kind of a vanity project. Oh, like, course. you know, I wanted like, like, you know, I, I think I wanted the satisfaction of being like, I got across the line with a publisher. I wrote yeah. something that was so good that it was undeniable. Yes. I wrote something that was so good that somebody was willing to pay me money to buy yeah. it off me. And I, I do think of myself on some level as a freelancer. Mm. And I think of, no, of course you, are. you know, I think of myself as, you know, I take pride in a job well done. Mm. And I take pride in writing stuff that is good enough to get paid for and bought yeah, and yeah. do all of that. You know, that that's a huge amount of um of what, you know, gives me day-to-day -day satisfaction is, you know, producing stuff in the world that that is is on some level and yeah, according yeah. to some people, good. Uh and I don't think I you know, I don't think I could ever be happy with like, you know, just having like a, you know, massive trust fund and just like, you know, self-publishing book after book after book yeah, for nobody yeah. to read, just so yeah, I can, you know, have the, cause I, cause I tried that when I was young, you know, I self-published that first book and, you know, like in reality, I self-published it so that I could hold my book in my hands cause it didn't yes. really sell any copies, but that wasn't satisfying to me because I hadn't earned anything. I wasn't getting no. in front of people. I wasn't, cause I do think that storytelling is on some level, no matter what form it takes, it's a conversation, you know, it's no, like, it's a play isn't complete until there's an audience in there experiencing yeah, yeah, yeah. it, yeah. you know? Um, and a book isn't complete until it's being read by people. No, for sure. Um, and and that, like that said, you know, like 95% of the words I've written in my life are 
on a hard drive on a computer somewhere. Yeah, no, exactly. Never see the light of day. There's heaps of there's full plays I've written, full books I've written, and also size of audience anywhere. as well. Yeah, it's exactly. like you could write an episode of a extremely successful TV show that'll be seen by more people than a best-selling novel. 100%. Um, may not be as artistically satisfying to you, but I think that's an interesting point too, is going, if you can find an audience, I know this with music, where it's like, oh, two or 3,000 people want to buy a record I'm doing. That's fucking amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That's like, I'm just like, oh my God. Yes. Yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. believe that a couple of thousand people want to do that. That's an audience that cares about what you do, regardless of the size. And if you're more experimental, well, then it's going to be a smaller audience. But that conversation between the work that you're doing and the people that are, um, are listening to it or reading it or watching it is is a really important factor. And that's the thing, you know, I, I do think on some level, like if I had, you know... You're winning me around. If, well, I mean, look, I mean if, I had, um, <laughs> if I had an audience of 100 or 50 mm. out mm. there who liked what I did and wanted to read whatever I mm. wrote and were interested in my stuff... I, th I think I could probably be satisfied with that. Hell yeah. Like just having, just having like, cause, cause in the end it's like, what a gift for there yeah. to be one person out there in the world yeah, I know. who appreciates what you do, Yeah, you know, like, cause a lot of people don't have that. And no, it's totally. Like, you know, it's, and I didn't for years of like writing stuff that nobody cared about, but like, you know, the idea that you can write something that can strike a chord with one person, yeah. two people, like that in and of itself is more of a win than most aspiring writers ever get in their life. Oh, my God, yeah. yeah so yeah. Someone's prepared to put their money down, but also their time. Yeah. And their time that could be spent on every other novel that's ever been written, every on TV yours. show, every film, yeah. all of those other things that could take like, their what attention. What a privilege. And it's, it's like, amazing. I mean, I feel every time I see somebody like on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, like, you know, tweet me with a photo of my book being kind of like, really enjoy this book mm. or whatever. Like the, the first yeah, thing the I best. feel is like an overwhelming sense of gratitude of just yeah. being kind of like, wow, you know, like, thank you. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. you bought it, you, you yes. bought it and you read it and you engaged with it and you devoted time out of yeah. your day to do this. Like, that's amazing. That's the most yeah. flattering thing that could ever, and even if you don't like it, yeah, but yeah. you still, you know, you still did that and engage with it. And like, that's like, like I, I actually think on some level, like I sat down with an author friend of mine recently and he was telling me how he doesn't read Goodreads. He's like, mm. no, don't read Goodreads, don't read reviews, don't touch any of that stuff, you know, don't want it to affect me or anything. And I had this moment of being like, I read Goodreads every day. Mm. I check it every single day. <laughs> and I like, and I've had people say to me like, why do you do that? Like, are you, are you like a complete narcissist? And I was like, no, because I think that, I uh, hope not anyway, but I'm like, because I find that I'm more excited for the bad reviews than the good ones. Mm. Like, because to me, there's a lot of reviews on Goodreads. It's just like, Really good book. Really enjoyed it. Very exciting. Five mm. stars. And I mean, that's that's awesome. But a well thought out bad review where somebody's really taking the time to like yeah, deconstruct yeah. it and say, this is why I don't think it worked. That's somebody really engaging with your work, yes. like really thinking about it and really engaging with it. And even if it's in a negative context, if you can mm. move somebody to engage on that level with something that you have made up, yeah, yeah, yeah. like even that I'm grateful for. I'm yeah. immensely grateful for. And I find it so fascinating because, you know, I obviously have to think it's good on some level, otherwise I wouldn't write it. Yeah, or well, the opposite of love isn't um, hate, it's, it's indifference. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, which is exactly. So true. Someone naturally. Yeah, um, and that, when you were saying about people who do engage with it, like when someone says, uh, I don't know in my experience, oh, that, that record was when my partner and I were driving through the outback through the summer yeah. of whatever. And that was our, that was our album of that time. That, that's the nicest thing you can ever hear. Well, you've, you've like, you know, you've been the soundtrack to a defining yeah. moment in somebody's life. Yeah, I mean, how best. incredible is that? And like a book, like, when you read a book, at the, uh, you know, over a summer holiday or whatever, uh, th those things really yeah, stay with you. Yeah. Or a movie where you just, it just altered how you saw the world. That, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely. so lovely. Um, okay. So you get this book, The Hunted, uh, it's going to get published and you're, you've been writing novels as a kid and, mm -hmm. and often on while you've been doing plays and studying screenwriting, but you have been writing plays and you have started, studied kind of classic screenwriting. What did you bring from plays and screenwriting? What did you learn from plays and learning kind of the kind of nuts and bolts and the craft of screenwriting that enabled you to write this, you know, it's a, for those of you who haven't read it, the hundred, it is amazing. It is a page turner. What did you take from theatre and from film that enabled you to write this really successful novel that really captured people's imaginations? I think that theatre probably taught me predominantly dialogue and character. Yep. Like, particularly dialogue, because I think it was like the first time one of my plays was produced and I'd just written some basic conversations between characters, like, you know, friends ribbing on each other and, you know, yep. bantering and everything. 
And I remember the first time that went on in front of an audience and they were laughing at the joke and they weren't like particularly funny lines. They were just mm. kind of like laughing along with it and kind of getting caught up in it and everything. And I was like, okay, I think I've got a bit of a knack for dialogue here. And I refined that doing theater and everything. And like, you know, obviously in a lot of my early plays, like, I was trying to, you know, seem a lot more intelligent than I was. So I was writing like very pretentious, verbose dialogue where every character was, you know, using... Because of a young writer. Exactly. You know, four syllable words and everything. And then I was just kind of like, (laughs) all right, well, that's not really how people speak. But one thing I always remember is doing an exercise when we were here at VCA, which was on dialogue. And it was go out and record a random conversation on the street and bring it back in. And of course, most of them were just really, really tedious and full of Mm. ums and ahs and all of that. And I think what I took away from that was that I was like... I don't think dialogue has to be realistic because dialogue's very constructed mm. and, you know, it's got to be entertaining and engaging and hold an audience's attention in its own right. And most real conversations won't do that. No. But it has to be naturalistic. It has to yeah. sound natural. It has yeah, to sound it's, like it's something It's not real, but it's got to feel real. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the skill. And I think, I think theatre taught me that, you know, because I would sit in the audience watching plays I'd written and being highly attuned to the moments that audience members laughed, the moments they leaned in. And my plays were mainly dialogue. You know, mm. it was mainly... I didn't have the budget to do anything big or explosive or spectacular. So it was mainly usually two to four people in a room mm. having a conversation. And learning how to make that compelling, you know, was a huge learning curve. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. But you could always tell if it was working because, I mean, you can feel the energy in the room, but you can see people leaning in. You can see people transfixed. You can see the moments where they gasp, the moments where they laugh, all of those things. You can see and what's them engaging. that? Do you think it's when, when someone really wants something and there's a sense of stakes? Yeah, and I think it's I think it's a combination of things. I think it's partly that, and I think it's um, I think it's probably three things. I think it's like a clear motivation and a sense of stakes of like there's something they're trying to get. Yeah, I think it's the character being established to a degree where that's dramatically compelling in and of itself. Like mm. if you know that character, um, if you know that character A is really really insecure about the prospect of his wife having an affair, mm. and then halfway through the play he finds out his wife is having an affair, yeah. you're going to be interested in the result because yes. it's like how's he going to react to this? Because he's been established as having this particular insecurity, yeah. and that nightmare's come true. What does that do to him? You know. Yeah. So if you've established the character well, and then you've got like a high stakes situation that the character's forced to respond to. And you've made the character interesting enough that the audience is going to want to see their response. That in of itself, that's compelling. That's yeah. storytelling. That's drama. That's conflict. That's all of that. But also, I think there's got to be some emotional truth to it. Like mm. every book or play I've written that has at least to some degree worked has had at least one scene or one one idea or emotion or expressed thought that is something that like I don't want to share. Mm. Like it's something that like comes from like an uncomfortable place. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if I want that out there. Mm. I don't know if I want people to know that I think that way or feel that way mm. or whatever. But I find that the stories only work if that's there. If there's yeah. something raw and vulnerable and real, even if it's only one scene or one yeah. moment, even if it's only like, you know, one, one vaguely alluded to glimmer of a fear that I have that's deep and buried and yeah. I don't want to talk about, you know. Isn't so, it funny how with those that like, those things that you're afraid to tell people because you think, oh my God, if they knew I thought that or felt that, they would push me away. Almost always what happens is someone, that the person goes, oh, you too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I've got a version of that. Yes. Almost always. It's a really good thing to remember. Absolutely. And that, that's always happened. Every time I've had Brings that, people you know, in. those are the moments if somebody comes and goes, wow, like that really, really got to me or really spoke to me or whatever. And I think that, um, I think that, you know, in in some ways, like, the truth there is that none of us are quite as interesting as we think we are. Like we all think that we have these experiences and thoughts and feelings that nobody else in the world has. But the truth <laughs> is there's 6 billion people in the world. Chances mm. are, specifically speaking, somebody has mm. had that exact experience yeah. or that thought or that feeling or it's feels just that your way or whatever. Of it. And so usually I think what makes a story really stick with somebody, if you've done your job and you've made it compelling and dramatic and everything, is having that like raw, vulnerable, difficult to share emotional aspect that will let somebody sit up and go, oh, I'm not alone in the world. Mm. Like there's actually somebody else who's felt this. Like yes. if my most deeply expressed fear or insecurity or doubt or whatever it is, is there on the stage or the page or the screen, then I'm going to feel a little bit less alone. Yeah. And that's one thing I took away from theater. And then I think with the screenwriting side of things, and particularly studying here at VCA, it was structure. Mm. You know, it was because I didn't understand structure in my early screenwriting or just writing in general mm. days. I didn't get it. And I coming back to the thing about the bad review and kind of, you know, getting angry about it because it was right. I got angry and resistant to a lot of what we were taught about structure early on because I knew I hadn't been doing it. Mm. And it kind of was like an emperor has no clothes moment for me personally, where I was like, I've put on X amount of plays (laughs) and suddenly I'm seeing all these deficiencies in them and I'm seeing all the ways. But of course, (laughs) what I had to accept was the fact that like, 
none of these plays had been very well received. So, you know, like for the first time I had to go, well, maybe the critics aren't assholes. Mm. Maybe they just weren't very good. Mm. And that's because I didn't quite know what I was doing yet. Right. And then the first play that I put on after my time at VCA sold out and got rave reviews, Mm. you know, and it was funny because then I looked at it and I was like, oh, this actually follows all of these, you know, mm. these ideas that I've kind of come to get my head around of mm. like five act structure of turning mm. points of pinch points of a midpoint yeah. of a theme and of arcs and all of this stuff. And what I kind of arrived at with that, because in my most resistant moments to those teachings, I think my fear was that following traditional Hollywood structure mm. was in some way writing by numbers. Mm. You know, it was in some way having everything laid out for you yeah. and being able to film That's the, the classic thing to say. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's strangling my creativity exactly. and, and I said my that. voice. I, I probably said that to you yeah, when we were busy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I think I said that to anyone who would listen, you know, yeah. and I remember kind of resentfully sitting there when we go for drinks after class being like, oh, well, I, you know, I just like, you know, I'm like, I'm this like amazing creative mind yeah. and like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't like being taught this stuff. I don't, I don't like being told how to write. But I think it was then after having a particularly savage review of one of my plays and then kind of being forced to concede that it was right. And then to have a look at what I'd written afterwards where on some level the VCA mm. stuff was sinking in. And then I think maybe the moment that it crystallised and was kind of my come to Jesus moment was watching Jaws one night and suddenly realising that Jaws it's followed every oh, single yeah. one of those to things. A and then I went down this like panicked route of like looking at all my favourite books and movies mm. and being like, oh my God, you know, mm. inciting incident, first act turning yeah. point, like, you know, and, and like figuring all of it out. And, and then and most suddenly, of the indie art house ones as well. They do you as know, well. And it's, it's, this, it's, just, it's just interesting things happening in a story. Exactly. And that's it. It's like, I mean, you, I think you said to me once really well, where you were like, you know, it's just make sure something interesting happens every 10 minutes, yeah. you know? And, and it's, it's kind of like, it's deceptive because it sounds simple and it can be difficult to no, get your head hard. around. But, um, <laughs> but it is like, and that's something I'm going through right now with my current novel is like getting to a point where I was like, this isn't working for me. And I was like, why isn't it working for me? And I was like, well, because every chapter isn't driving the story forward. And because the consequences of some of these moments aren't the most interesting thing that could happen. Yeah. Like what's the most interesting outcome from this? Yeah. And, you know, if I've established my characters well. Yeah, it'll still then, be believable. Exactly, you know. So, so I think once I'd kind of accepted that, and I, I guess accepted that, you know, like, and the thing I always say to people who struggle with, you know, the rules of storytelling mm. is I go, they're, they're tools, not rules. No, like, totally. Write however you want to write, because mm. I mean, you can write something in a complete vacuum and isolation. Nobody has to see it until you're ready for anyone mm. to see it. Mm. And then my advice is learn this stuff and then decide how it works for you. And I mean, yes. as I've said to you before, you know, I, um, what I do now is that like, I'll write something and I've got my own process, but I don't really think about turning points or midpoints mm. or anything until mm. I'm done. And then I start to try to identify them because nine yeah. times out of 10, they're there because it's just naturally how you tell a story. Yes. It's just strengthening them, refining them, making sure they're yeah. really working as well as they can to drive the story forward. Yeah. And then eventually you will end up with something that that works. And that doesn't yes. take away from your ability to, you know, be creative and be original and be truthful. It actually unleashes that. 100%. Like it actually, by, by having that, not even framework, but having that like guidance to make sure that your story is moving and is interesting and is engaging mm. and isn't lingering too long in one spot mm. or isn't rushing through things too much. It actually allows the ideas and things you want to talk about to breathe and to come yeah. out and yeah. to actually, you know, have a structured framework in which an audience can appreciate it. hundred percent. And the, the common often here is the, uh, oh, that's just uh, Hollywood trash, you know, Marvel yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're going, sure, that, that's not to your taste. It's not, not to my taste either, but then I'll go, they're in Marinade's films too. Yeah, 100%. You know, like Tony Urban, everyone, I adore her as a filmmaker. And you're going, yeah, she comes at it from a character point of view. I'm, I have no doubt that she builds her characters up and then lets them speak to her and all the rest of it. But Tony Urban, one of my favourite films of the last 10 years, has amazing turning points in it that surprise you and delight you. They're always credible because she's the characters are always true to themselves. But this idea that, structure is somehow this evil commercial, highly commercial thing that destroys cinema. And you're going, yeah, in the wrong hands it does. If you're a creative person with something to say, all it's really doing is giving you a roadmap to make the audience more interested in what you're doing. 100%. And, you know, it's funny because, like, I think you can... You can go too far in the opposite direction. Oh, gotcha, yeah. I've known plenty of writers We've all seen those, you know... Three, third act structure twists where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. They are often in Marvel films. And you're like, yep... Ten minutes before yeah, the film's going to end. Well, yeah, well, everything's going to go to shit again, you know. And that's the thing. It's like you know, many, many of the most like soulless blockbusters follow that stuff to a T, yes. you know. And it's like, and they'll they'll have like I say, quote unquote, theme. It's not something mm. that means anything to whoever's written it. It's just no. you know, it's a message they've like tacked yeah. in there so that it's like this film is about something. But yeah, like you yeah, know, yeah, I've known yeah. screenwriters as well or aspiring writers who obsess over like Save the Cat and Robert mm. McKee and all of that stuff, and they write stuff that is like 
technically worthless. perfect, but there's nothing. Yeah. There's no them in there. You need there's blood no and guts exactly. There's no personal reason to tell the story. There's yeah. no emotional truth to it, and and that's the that's the other side to it. It's kind of like, well, yeah, okay, if you if you follow that stuff to a T and you don't put any you in it, then yeah, you will end up with mm. that writing by numbers worst case scenario. Yeah, gotcha. But if you actually have something to say and you've got a story to tell, mm. and you've got a burning desire to tell it, yeah. and you do put something vulnerable on the page, then it, it's it's never going to hold you back. No, God, not no. in any way. Well, it's that thing of um, your voice is the unique thing about you. You're, and as you were saying, yeah, everyone's everyone's experienced what you've experienced, but not in the exact not with the way. specificity of how you experienced it, and not in a particular way that you experience. So you've got this really precious thing, which is your voice, but that more, more often than not, that is going to be aided by understanding the craft of yeah. writing. And I think that's the thing that gets lost with people who are either too obsessed with the craft and not about the blood and guts or people who are just thinking, I've got, I'm an interesting person. That'll be enough for my story to be great. Yeah. I think it's when you can combine the two that you end up with novels, cinema plays that are truly, they can speak to people and speak to an audience, um, but also be true to the author's voice as well. Well, I think that, you know, your first, maybe the first thing you need to start with in some respects is to banish the idea that you're in any way interesting. <laughs> like when I, when I, I mean, you, you are, but like no more interesting than anyone else mm. who can share a room with you or be talking to you or whatever. Like when I was about 18 or something, I wrote a, this is really embarrassing to admit, <laughs> but I wrote a novel that was just my teenage years written as a novel, like yep. verbatim to my memory of it. Yep. And I had it in my head that I was going to get this published and it was going to be a bestseller <laughs> and everything. And I was like, it's like a new Kerouac type mm. thing. Of course, yeah. it fucking wasn't. Like, you know, yeah. there was nothing interesting in there, but like oh, inherently interesting, but I was writing about stuff that meant a lot to me, which was my experiences, which was the only thing I had to write about at mm. that time. Now, every experience I wrote about in that very, very bad, very self-indulgent book I have somehow used in something else down yeah, the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just used it in a way that's a lot more interesting and yeah. high stakes and compelling. It isn't just a teenager's boring life. Well, know? that's a great point, isn't it's... it? Because there's that thing of like, I often get the thing where I'm going, oh, I'm losing kind of interest in the story at this point. And they go, no, oh, but that's exactly what happened at the party when I was 15. And I'm going, yeah, you know, everyone got rejected at a party when yeah, they were yeah. 15. I, I get that. The rejection that you felt is really great. Um, how how angry it made you feel or how useless it made you feel great. But maybe just like up in the stakes a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Isn't evil. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe it's not evil to make it in a slightly more interesting setting. Maybe it's not evil to go, maybe the stakes could be a little higher and what this person has to lose could be a little higher. And maybe it could be a little surprising, which could have happened in that situation, but didn't yeah, because it didn't. real life is generally pretty dull. But the general things I want to talk about, if I can just twist them a little bit and play with them a little bit to make them a little more surprising and, and those turning points to be a little more like, oh, yeah, I can believe that happened, but I didn't see it coming. Yeah. <gasps> What's going to happen next? Like that's I don't, I've never really thought that that's evil because even in my favourite, I'm generally someone who prefers kind of a non-mainstream art house cinema, but that still isn't apparent in the vast majority of those films. Are. Well, I mean, I always think back to... You know, imagine Parasite without its turning points. Yeah, so, well, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, like, but you know, I always think back to, like, you know, my, my YA book, The True Colour of Little White Lie, you know, that that is based very explicitly on an experience I had when I was 14 when my parents ran a ski lodge on Mount Buller. And, you know, I was a bullied kid at school. I wasn't having a good time and everything. And on the weekends, I could go up to Mount Buller and completely reinvent myself, you yes. know, like with the staff members up there who didn't know I was a loser, mm. with like girls coming up from the city who yeah. I could like flirt with and they didn't know that I was this like daggy loser who'd like, you know, who, who wouldn't want to do that as a school, you know, of course. And it was like yeah. this, you know, this seminal experience for me when I was a kid and it stuck with me for a long, long time. But the reality is like the, the verbatim letter of what happened in that winter was not particularly interesting. It was interesting no. to me at the time, yeah. but it's not a story. So no. when I wrote True Color, I was like, I'm so, so like probably 60% of what is in the True Color of the white lie is true hmm. and when people ask me what's true and what's not i say the parts that make you cringe the most hmm. are generally true yeah um the really big dramatic moments hmm. not so much yeah. like you know so like i never had like a love triangle when i was up there i didn't yeah. get i didn't lie my way into a ski hmm. race i wasn't qualified for and you know I, I didn't there's a scene in there where they like pull a heist on like hmm. a bad a, an annoying customer to get him out of there hmm. and humiliate him out of the lodge and everything like, none of that happens hmm. but um but if you didn't have that it wouldn't the story be a book wouldn't that be. people wanted to exactly. read. Exactly. Yeah. And then when I first delivered that book to my publisher, she asked me two questions. And the first one was, is this book based on personal experiences? And mm. I said, yes, it is. The second question is, are the lessons the main character learns in this book the lessons you wish you'd learnt at that age? Mm. And I was Ooh, like, okay. oh, shit. 
<laughs> and I stopped and I thought about it. And I was like, yeah, they absolutely are. And I realized that in a weird way, by fictionalizing the book, upping the stakes yeah. and letting the main character learn things that I didn't learn until much, much mm. later, it didn't make the book less truthful. It made it more truthful. Oh my God, that's so true. Because like, you have to usually to change yeah. or to learn something, you've got to be put under more pressure exactly, than just exactly. day-to-day life. So yeah, yeah, I mean, if I'd if I'd written just what happened in my yeah. life, it would have been more accurate, would have been less interesting, but it also would have been less truthful to what me now as an adult wants to talk yeah. about and explore and Telling the life a experiences lie that I want to exactly to get to a bigger truth. So and and that's the thing, like that it's this it's this weird like contradiction. Where it's like, yeah, like that, that book is, is the most personal thing I've ever written, mm. but predominantly because of the stuff I made up, mm. like I didn't learn those lessons when I was 14. No, God, no. I learned them when I was much older, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. know, That's what the books, for. exactly, exactly. That's, yeah, isn't that great? Cause it's coming from a kernel of truth of being like, you know, a lot of us have been bullied at school. A lot of us have been defined by your image at school and what you did at school. And so now you're yeah, lumbered with yep. all of that and who wouldn't when I have the chance to go, oh, hang on, I can reinvent myself where these people don't know the me at, you know, the me from totally my other different. life. I can be different. That's like a really beautiful truth. But yeah, of course you didn't learn that in the actual situation because not it, it wasn't full on enough. And in our lives, it's really only five or six for most people, incredibly full on things happen exactly, that are enough yeah. to change you. So the big like, turning you got to invent life. some of those things to because you don't change unless well, you put under pressure even like know? it's funny i'm thinking about it now because you read a, a book about if you think about life this way you'll be better you won't think about life that way until no, until, God, you've no. until you've lived shit. enough of it to, yeah, you know, until, to learn that yeah but i mean like i think you know when i was when i was going through that experience in real life like going up there on the lodge and everything i remember there was this girl who was coming up every second weekend and i'd put some of this in the book and i want to impress her and at the time, when I was 13, I was really insecure about my name because, you know, Gabriel is my name. And you can imagine a country high school, like, you know. That's a girl's the, name. Yeah. Or, or, you know, Gabriel, you know, a lot, lot of that kind of thing. Mm. And um, and so I gave her a fake name. I gave her the name I wanted to have. And I had this persona I'd invented in my head of this, like, cool me. And I gave her this fake name and I was, like, talking to her and everything. And then I remember one of the staff members walking past me like, hey, Gabriel, what are you doing? And she was like, wait, wait, what? And I was like, oh, that's... That's my real name. There was no, like, she wasn't, like, upset or anything. She was like, that's a bit weird. Why'd you lie about that? And that was, that was it. But, like, that's not high stakes and dramatic. So instead, I've, in the book, I've been, like, talking about exactly what you were saying about the being rejected at 15 and making more high stakes. In the mm. book, I'm like, okay, so what he lies about is the fact that there's another girl coming up on other weekends he's telling oh, yeah. other stories to. And so when that comes out, it's going to be a lot more dramatic. Yes. But it's still that experience of being embarrassed because you've been caught out in a lie yeah. that you've told to make yourself look better. But now the lie has much and deeper it's got ramifications yeah, and stakes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, I could probably talk to you forever. This, <laughs> yeah. is, this is a lot of fun, uh, but there's a lot of kernels in there for people who are wanting to tell stories that I think is amazingly valuable. And I think it's really cool to see that. I don't know anyone. Oh, there's probably four or five people in my life that are writers that I know write as much as you that just are committed to doing it. And it's, I'm really happy that that's paid off for you. Um, and that you're able to tell stories for a living now and that you haven't gone, it has to be screenwriting, it has to be plays, it has to be whatever. You actually just say, I want to be able to tell stories and where you naturally, through all the things you learned, wound up in novels, which at the end of the day is probably going to end up in you being able to write a screenplay. So well, that's it's, it, yeah. it's, I think it's interesting to allow the chaos, the chaotic nature of life to take you where it takes you and to seize every opportunity that comes along. And you may end up, that may end up working for you in a way that you never thought it would have. Well, that's, I mean, you never, you never like, I mean, in the midst of like all the rejection and stuff from all those years ago, like I, I thought I'd wasted my time. I thought, mm. you know, I'd focus too much on, you know, on this at the expense of this or whatever, mm. you know, I focused too much on plays at the expense of screenwriting or whatever yeah. it was. But, you know, looking back on it with a bit of hindsight perspective, you go, well, nothing was wasted. Everything played a part yes. in, you know, getting you further along there. And I think it is one thing, as I said to students before, and I will say again and again, it's like, I think if you want to be a screenwriter, just like put a put brackets around the screen mm. and be like, no, yeah. be a writer. Yes. Learn how to write in every area yeah. because it is going to make you much more likely to succeed in one if you don't succeed yeah. in the other. And as long as you're telling stories, who really cares yeah. what the medium is? Totally. You know? And if you write a novel where you get, you have to spend more time inside the character's head because we're hearing their thoughts, that is going to make you think more about character 100%. and how they think that you can't do that in a screenplay as easily, but it will make you think more. Exactly. All of it ties in together. Um, the other thing I think is we had a 
the uh, director of Catherine King came and spoke to the student. It might have been when you were here. It was a while ago. But anyway, he said this really beautiful thing at the end of his talk where he was saying, he was like in his late 70s at that point, and he was saying, oh, I love your generation. He was talking to people in their 20s. He said, you're more open-minded, you're kinder, you, you're good. He says, this is one thing I want to say to you. You've got an input-output problem. And I think this is a really great lesson. He said, if 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 all you're doing is watching things and and, and your life is all about input, when you go to do your output, it's going to be too reflective of the yeah, stuff that you're watching. Yeah. And so he says, really think about your input output level. And if you if you spend six hours watching a TV show, you should spend six hours doing some output as well and try 100%. and work that balance and probably try and have your output larger than your input. And I thought that's a really yeah. great way of looking at it. There's a lot of people who want to be successful who are doing a shit ton of input and not nearly enough output. And the output doesn't have to be good as you've attested. Shit work will teach you more often than good work, but just keep an eye on your output and just do it. And somehow if you keep doing it, it'll work out for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Absolutely. man. It's been a real pleasure. Cheers, Ben. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that was a, that was a joy. Take care. Great. <laughs> So that was Gabriel Bergmoser. What a lightning bolt of a human being. I think the really beautiful lesson that Gabriel teaches all of us is not so much worrying about outcomes, but just putting in the work. If you put in the work, you face that blank page and you get the words down, things will eventually happen for you. And I think that's a really cool message to leave us all with. We'll see you soon. Happy travels.